This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. Welcome to the Craft Beer and Brewing Podcast. I'm your host, co-founder and editorial director of Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine, Jamie Bogner. My guest is joining us today from St. Louis, Missouri, Jonathan Moxie, head brewer for Rockwell Beer Co. Welcome to the podcast, Jonathan. Hey, Jamie. Thanks a lot. It's good to be here. If you are an all-access subscriber to Craft Beer and Brewing, you may have watched Jonathan's class recently on uh, brewing session strength beers. Um, Jonathan's got a... a, a a history of brewing for uh, uh, one in particular fantastic brewery uh, also there in St. Louis um, that we're big fans of perennial. We're going to walk through some of the the background. And then of course, like I guess it was last year, 29, actually two years ago, 2019, when you, you uh, jumped on uh, board with Rockwell beer company to uh, launch that brewery. Am I right? Uh, 2018, but yeah, 2018. Gosh. Yeah, yeah, it was 2019 uh, when I first got there. Yeah, well, last um, year was three years, so it did. <laughs> oh, man. Where is the time gone? It feels yeah. like forever. Uh, <laughs> anyway, we're going to talk about, um, you know, Jonathan at Rockwell has uh, done some really nice work brewing everything from food or Baltic porter to light session strength beers, mixed culture beers, even playing around with uh, quite yeast. We're going to talk a little bit about uh, a lot of that experimentation. But first is the brewing industry's premier choice for glycol chilling. GD Chillers has set the standard on quality, service, reliability, and dedication to their customers' craft. New this year, redundancy meets efficiency. GD's micro channel condensers are built with an all aluminum construction, which eliminates galvanic corrosion. Using half the refrigerant of conventional condensers with fewer brazed connections translates to a lower GWP and less opportunity for leaks. Call GD Chillers today to discuss your project or reach out directly at gdchillers.com. Also, BSG is partnering with Leopold Brothers to bring a new line of small batch handmade malts to brewers and distillers. Leopold Brothers is a family-owned floor malting operation and distillery and 2020 James Beard Award finalist located in Denver, Colorado. Since brothers Scott and Todd Leopold first opened their doors in 1999, they've created everything from classic unfiltered lagers to a number of spirits, including a wide array of whiskey styles. Learn more about the upcoming malt line by going online to bsgcraftbrewing.com or contact BSG at 1-800-374-2739. So I should also mention that uh, we did profile Rockwell as a breakout brewer uh, in Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine, and so there's also more for uh, subscribers and readers of Craft Beer and Brewing if they want to delve into that specific history. But uh, for those that may not have seen or read that story, Jonathan, uh, catch people up on your brewing history and, uh, you know, the kind of steps that led you to the point where you are today uh, as head brewer for Rockwell. Yeah, so I actually, um, I started brewing in my backyard uh, whenever my wife and I were living in uh, New York City. Uh, we lived there for about six and a half years, and uh, I graduated with a uh, degree in journalism and, and realized very quickly that I did not want to be a journalist. And then it's just kind of <laughs> up to, you know. What do you have against the, the, journalists? Uh, no, Moxie? no, Come I, on. I, I, I have, uh, you know, uh, quite the opposite. I, I have a lot of uh, respect sure, sure. For, for journalism. I just figured that the world didn't need uh, another shitty one. So if, uh, if you didn't have the... Uh, 
the fire in my belly to get up and do that every day. I needed to find right. something else to do. Uh, and so I, I tried out a number of different things. And uh, along the way, uh, my friend Matt Fitzgerald taught me how to homebrew. And uh, I hooked up with the New York City Homebrewers Guild. And uh, that was a, it was a heady time to be in a homebrew club. There was a lot of... Uh, uh, what, what years are we talking here? Like 2009 to 2012. So sure. like out of that uh, homebrew club, you know, we've seen... And I'm I'm bound to miss a few, but uh, KCBC, Fifth Hammer, Finback, um, people that have brewed at Other Half and Carton and Little Fish, and I mean that's just in the Northeast, right? Um, and then and then me, and you know, so it was a <laughs> there were plenty of people that have been doing it for years as a as a hobby and just something to do on the weekend. But then there were also a group of us that were like, Hey, you know, like we want to make a go at this. Let's make ourselves better as quickly as possible. And so, uh, did that, um, uh, was fortunate enough to, you know, pick a lot of, uh, professional brewers, uh, minds along the way. And then my wife and I, like we knew that living in New York city was always going to be a, a limited engagement. Uh, and, and really even having a brewery in New York was kind of a pipe dream at that point because they hadn't passed the, the Farm Brewers Bill that made it uh, the math work for uh, breweries sure. in the five boroughs. Uh, it, all, it seemed I was in New York City in 2009, moved out in 2010 to Colorado, but same kind of thing. Like uh, the beer world seemed to blossom right after I left. Uh, yeah. Thanks. Thanks, New York State. Exactly. And uh, so, but while I was up there, um, you know, I'm, I'm originally from Missouri and uh, my wife and I were trying to figure out like, all right, you know, you want to be a brewer, where do you want to go after that? And, you know, we, we thought about all of the, you know, the, the fun places to live like Denver or Portland or, or San Diego that are, uh, you know, mature, saturated beer cities. But 2011 2012 was an incredibly exciting time for st louis you know like schlafly was well established you know 10 years in at that point but uh, excuse me 20 years in at that point but you saw perennial and uh second shift and urban chestnut and four hands and civil life all just you know like that wave of breweries that really uh put st louis on the map uh, as a craft brewing scene. And it was just like, man, like, why don't we just be close to our family and go on vacation whenever we actually want to go on a vacation and live with, you know, near, near our folks the rest of the time. And so I was very fortunate. I, uh, I met Tom Schlafly and Dan Kopman, as well as, uh, Phil Wymore while I was living in New York. And, uh, Dan, uh, offered me an internship at Schlafly, which, uh, I was kind of leaning toward, going that route anyways, didn't really want to go back to brewing school and then go to somewhere else uh, after that without a you know a guaranteed job on the other end. I'd rather work for free for a bit. Uh, so I did that. And then I, you know, I told Phil Wymore that, you know, I was wanting to work for him until uh, he felt fit to pay me. Because at that <laughs> point, uh, you know, at that point I was really uh, into mixed fermentation and, and Belgian style beers and, uh, and, you know, interested in oak aging. And at that point in time in St. Louis, uh, perennial was the only game in town that was doing that year round. 
so I, I moved moved back uh, Thanksgiving 2012. Uh, did a month long internship at Schlafly, and then I, uh, I moved over to Perennial shortly after that, and was there for five and a half years. Um, obviously, we we everybody knows Perennial and knows uh, you know the kind of mark the Perennial has made on the the brewing world. Um, but at the same time, I mean Perennial was even learning through that process of mixed culture fermentation and uh, you know Belgian style brewing. And uh, you know when I taste Perennial beers now versus you know tasting those Perennial beers from 2013 2014, um, I mean you can taste the experience that's just been gained over that short amount of time um talk to me a little bit in your you know your progress of uh, of learning along the way in that kind of context from those earlier days of mixed culture fermentation mixed culture fermentation uh you know to today some of the uh kinds of key shifts and, and learning moments that uh, that happened yeah so i mean, like emily and, and phil wymore uh who own perennial uh, have always been, uh, you know, like in addition to being really good friends, uh, were very uh, gracious employers and and also uh, very encouraging for us to experiment. Um, you know, one of the things that, uh, you know, we had was uh, Thursday night, there was a new beer every Thursday night. And uh, it was a lot like open mic night, you know, like that may be uh, something that we fermented in buckets, something that maybe we only had four or five gallons of, but, you right. know, like, let's try it out. And, you know, people, it drew a crowd and, you know, you get honest feedback on it. Um, you know, of course. Uh, I know what you're talking about. I've been there. I was there one Thursday night years, probably four years ago when uh, it was time to announce and, you know, it was gather around stand yeah. up behind the bar and yell out the story to everybody present and, uh, you know, made a little moment of it. Sure. Yeah. And, and that was always a lot of fun. And, uh, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, mixed culture fermentation, like they were, they were right there on the front end of that, uh, you know, like to our knowledge, like they were the, uh, you know, Savant beer cell was the first, uh, hundred percent Britannomyces beer, uh, released in St. Louis, uh, and, you know, we're just kind of going from there and, you know, like figuring out a lot of stuff along the way, you know, like a lot of stuff uh, was great. And some of the stuff, you know, like we learned from uh, <laughs> and at the same time, you know, uh, Corey King was the head brewer there and he was starting, you know, a, a little something called a, a side project uh, as his side project, just, you know, the weird little sure. beers that didn't fit into uh, perennial and you know i mean we all know what happened with that you know like he's making uh some beer that is uh sought out uh you know the world over and uh and rightfully so but you know like all of us were, project they're they're all right you know yeah you know I, like yeah. but i you know i i learned a lot uh sure, sure. Uh, from from being around that um you know and all of us you know saw things uh in one another's uh successes as well as mistakes and it was, you know, just more experimentation and, you know, just trying to push things, trying to do things outside of, you know, what was done at that point. In sure. Beer. Let's fast forward to, uh, to 2018 as you uh, decide to uh, get on board with um, Rockwell Beer Company as a startup. Um, one of the subjects I'd love to talk about, as everyone who listens to the podcast knows, is is formulating that brewing identity for any kind of brewery. You know, coming out of a brewery like Perennial that had a pretty clear identity and a very uh, focused brewing program on brewing these kinds of, you know, Belgian-style beers. And then, of course, you know, now responding to modern trends and, and broadening that canon into 
IPA and, and other kinds of styles that people want to buy. Um, you know, how did you then, you know, as you started talk, uh, working with uh, the owners of Rockwell, thinking about a brewing identity for Rockwell that would stand apart from some of these uh, uh, brands that are so well respected, like Perennial Side Project, Second Shift, Four Hands, Schlafly, et cetera. Um, you know, talk to me a little bit about that, uh, you know, that thought process and that creative process behind building a brewing identity. Yeah. So, you know, I, I had been, uh, I've been looking to, to potentially move on, uh, from perennial, uh, for a little bit, uh, you know, like it was a great place to work, but, uh, you know, as you mentioned, everybody gets that itch. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like, uh, they, they were making world-class beer and are making world-class beer. And, um, a lot of that pipeline because of the distribution footprint, a lot of that pipeline was, you know, are already uh, allocated time-wise. You know, you only have so much time in tank space. And there were other things that I just really wanted to do. And the more I thought about it, uh, what I wanted to do was, uh, you know, it's kind of cliche, I guess, to say, like, I want to beer, brew the beer that I want to drink. But Yes, what that I is saw, cliche. Yeah, but, <laughs> but, uh, but really, the, like, the focus of it was seeing this uh, hyper-specific, uh, specialty beers, you know, like these, uh, the fruited kettle scours, uh, the big uh, barrel-aged stouts, the adjunct stouts, that sort of thing, that really appeal to a very specific niche of the beer community. And then there's I guess you could other... say it as, I bet there are people here now who would like to drink the beers that I want to make that aren't being made here now. Yes, and exactly. Now, like, you know, like... Yeah. I, I think about, you know, the 99.9% .9 of people that have no idea what a, uh, a barrel-aged Abraxas or a barrel-aged 17 or a, a s'more stout or something like that is, you know, like they want a well-made Pilsner or a well-made uh, pale ale, something like that. Uh, and that, to me, um, had a lot of allure. I, I also really wanted to draw the focus back to being not local for the sake of being local, but local for being part of the community, whether that is uh, appealing to people that aren't necessarily beer nerds that just live nearby or doing things to give back to the community that are, is around us and supports us. And there's definitely a beer hall vibe to Rockwell, a modern beer hall, vibe, a contemporary beer hall uh, vibe, um, you know, but that specific kind of beer hall approach wasn't necessarily the perennial or side project kind of brand or ideal. Um, it's definitely more in line with that urban chestnut idea of make great beer that people can drink, uh, you know, together in, in groups and, uh, you know, and enjoy that kind of bigger environment. And that's, and, you know, you've built some of that to an extent at Rockwell. Yeah. I mean, like that's, that has always been, you know, uh, kind of, kind of a guiding principle of, of what we've tried to do both in the, the type of beer, uh, that, uh, that we make as well as the type of place that we want to run, whether that's, you know, the, the aesthetic, you know, like you said, a beer hall, but also the way that um, we try to be uh, accessible, hospitable and unpretentious, you know, a, a gathering place, which, you know, now more than ever we need, you know, like uh, so, some uh, common space where people with differing ideals can get together and, you know, bump into one another and, you know, maybe find some sort of common ground. 
No, there's a fun and uh, fun energy I think to to Rockwell too, where there is a like I said a brightness and a contemporary modernism, um, you know, co- that contrasts with some of the the classic approaches in smaller beers. It's it feels fun, uh, you know, where civil life is so pubby, beautiful in, in the way that they construct small beers, but feels cozy and warm and small and uh, you know, and Rockwell feels energetic and you know uh, bold and bright and uh you know and contemporary uh even if the beers may have a little more similarity to each other than the ideas of the brands right, um, but there are certainly different kinds of you know consumers that can uh, be attracted to similar beer styles and different kinds of contexts and, and different kinds of brands um let's pivot and talk a little bit about again that that foundation of the the beer program itself and some of the uh, cores that you built around uh, you know some of the, the, the foundations of that beer program before we do that a brewery might have 99 problems but your fruit supplier shouldn't be one old orchard is already known for their quality concentrates but they also pride themselves on consistent product and reliable supply when brewers need assistance old orchard is just an email phone call or even a text away based in greater grand rapids michigan better known as beer city usa Old Orchard is core to the brewing community. To join their fruit family, learn more at www.oldorchard.com slash brewer. Also for years, Brewery DB has been the industry's only professionally curated source of brewery and beer information. In 2019, over 1 million taproom visits were made by craft fans searching for breweries on brewerydb.com. In early 2021, Brewery DB will unveil an all-new experience to help craft lovers get back on the brewery trail. To take full advantage of the enhanced marketing power of Brewery DB and to increase your taproom traffic, visit marketmybrewery.com. That's marketmybrewery.com. It's easy and it's free. So, Jonathan, talk to me about, um, you know, thinking of, uh, you know, obviously, since you're approaching Rockwell with this beer hall vibe and with this open and accessible but modern kind of, you know, approach, um, what did you start to, like, hang your ideas on for brewing? What were those beers that are going to be the things that people want to drink from Rockwell? Sure. So the the first beer recipe that I wrote, uh, you know, for Rockwell immediately after I came on board was uh, Passing Clouds, uh, our Belgian-style wit beer. Uh, it's one of the beers that we led with whenever we opened and is still, like, has always been our number one seller. Um, and, you know, I am happy to admit that the the reason why I wanted to brew that beer is because Allagash White is not distributed into Missouri. And, <laughs> you know, like, yeah, I'm, I'm a... Uh, an unapologetic fanboy, and anytime that that's on draft, I will order it. And you know, I just I saw, you know, one a real uh, selfish uh, itch that needed to be scratched, but also uh, an opportunity in the market. You know, like not having something like that, and uh, you know, that's thankfully something that's uh, paid off. Uh, other than that, I would say uh, the other beers that were really kind of foundational uh, were the the idea of having a robust lagering program uh, standby, which is our Hoppy Pilsner, uh, was something that I wanted to have on at all time, uh, as well as um, I really wanted to do a uh, a fooder uh, lagered Baltic Porter, which we are uh, canning the second batch of Katzmeers, uh this week, and 
it's uh it's really exciting you know like here in st louis with uh side project and perennial and main and mill and uh, second shift like you get a lot of the big uh modern uh barrel aged and stainless adjunct stouts and stuff like that and i wanted a a dark beer that kind of um stood apart from that a bit and I'm always more for Porter than I am stout, uh, anyway. And I think that, you know, after having some of the classic Baltic porters, um, especially, you know, like, you know, you think about an American interpretation and smutty nose, um, something like that, uh, would be appealing to that same audience, but also be distinct. Let's talk about that since you brought it up. And I, we, before I should mention that you did, speaking of standby, your Hoppy Pilsner, you did win a bronze medal, a GABF for that beer. So clearly there are some other folks that uh, think you're doing a, a nice job with it too. Um, but you've given us the segue in to talk about uh, food aged Baltic Porter. Um, let's dive down a little deeper on that. You know, the idea of aging, you know, Baltic Porter in a fooder. Uh, is not necessarily a historical one, you know, typically, you know, if wood tanks were used, they were pitch lined and didn't pick up that kind of wood aspect. Over the last few years, we've watched food or lagers become a thing in general. They are generally a modern invention of contemporary brewers. If you trace back that lineage, you know, to folks at threes, you know, as it was a brewer that they threw into it a uh, you know a fooder in order to neutralize it before they thought they were going to go mixed fermentation you know mixed culture in it and uh ended up liking the product and it kind of became a thing and now we're seeing them all over the country number one because fooders are actually not any more expensive than stainless tanks and so uh you know in that sense might as well uh you know use some get some character out of it or just to have something of you know a fun process around that from your perspective though um you know as you're trying to build inspiration for um cat's mirrors um where did you go and uh you know what did you pull from and you know, as you made some creative decisions around how you were going to do that um you know what were some of those decisions that you made yeah. So like, I mean, the, the, the fooder portion, I mean, absolutely came from, uh, you know, the beers that we tried at, at threes, you know, before, I mean, I was still traveling for a perennial at that point and having that. And, you know, like I was incredulous whenever I first saw it on the menu, I was like, you know, how are they going to do a clean beer there? And it's, it's tough, but it can be done. You just, you have to have your process down. And, um, you know, what I saw uh, or, or tasted rather was that the oak character is is much more in a, su- a supporting role. Like it's not like, you know, you know, putting it in a spirits barrel or a wine barrel or something like that. And when we got our our beautiful new fooders from Fooder Crafters, um, we went with a, uh, a light toast, heavy steam. And even after that, uh, you know, they, they had been sitting in our building for uh months swollen uh i had to fill it up with a garden hose because we were still under construction and fooder crafters and wild goose were the only people that hit their production timeline so we had fooders at a uh at a canning line and nothing in between um, <laughs> but yeah so I, I wanted uh you know at, when it was time to fill it with uh the loggers i wanted something uh, that was going to be complimentary, so but not overpowering. So again, like we uh, we steam the heck out of it, draining the the hot liquor tank several times through the spray ball, and even still, that first 
beer out of there um, had a, a good amount of oak character in like a marshmallowy way. Uh, once we got to the um, Fooder Baltic Porter with that darker beer, like it is very much a um, like a, a peripheral note there like there's not much oak at all even after this batch was in oak i believe three months uh lagering and so you get a little bit of that toast a little bit of that vanilla there that kind of rounds out uh the roastiness of the porter and what i really like you know in addition to it being a a horizontal tank which is just better for the lager anyways um you know it's almost like that beechwood aging uh, perspective where you're getting all that pour. So like the, the lager comes out impressively clear because all that yeast has uh, glommed onto the wood and stayed behind. That's really interesting. So you're saying that the wood surface tends to grab yeast and help it fall out of, you know, suspension uh, through that kind of lagering process. Yeah, so that that's been our experience. You know, we uh, we more so than off, stainless. I mean, yeah, um, huh. you know, we don't filter or find any of our beer. Um, I I prefer it that way. I'm I guess I'm strange in that I uh, I like a little bit of uh, lager yeast character. I, I you know a little sulfur, a little uh, a little chalkiness. Like I, I don't want it to be. Bad, you know, like um, poorly transferred, but I enjoy standby two different ways. You know, like the days uh, whenever it's uh, fresh on draft, like we're drinking it, uh, I was drinking some right now and uh, had it canned a week ago. And so there's still just a little bit hanging in suspension and it gives it, uh, you know, a, a bit of a color impression. But, um, you know, another week and you'll be able to read newsprint through the other side. And it's, you know, it's much closer to a German or Italian pills at that point. With, um, with cat's mirrors though, let's, um, I want to also talk about uh, some of the recipe decisions that you made along sure. the way. Um, where, where did you look to for, um, you know, the, the basic building blocks of that uh, Baltic Porter recipe? Um, and what were, what inspired you, uh, you know, to kind of build your own and what did you like? What do you, what elements of other Baltic Porters did you not like as much? And uh, talk to me about, you know, first maybe building the, the mash profile for that. But, um, and then we can talk about some of the fermentation ins and outs. Yeah, so in terms of um, the flavor, like whenever I think about more traditional um, European versions, they have some of that that dark fruit uh, and caramel that that layered um, those layers of flavor, and so put that in there with you know a couple of different crystal, you know, like there's some uh, special B as well as a little bit of uh, English crystal malt in there and some Carahel. Um, and then, you know, lo- looking to uh, more American versions like like Smutty Nose, which I don't even know if they make Smutty Nose um, Baltic Porter anymore, but I actually, I drank my last one that I brought back from New York as I was like, you know, doing, you know, research to write this recipe for Casimir's and, uh, you know, it's strong. It's like 10%. Uh, 
And, you know, most of the European ones that you find are, you know, like six and a half to seven. And so I wanted a bit more of that heft, um, you know, because I wanted it to be substantial, but also to wear it well. Um, you know, like I, I think that that is uh, always a goal for us as brewers that like if we're going to brew a strong beer, you're not going to know it. You know, like we, and I think part of that is, uh, you know, how we do, you know, an element of almost sessionability, if you will. Like whenever we do our Maybach, it's uh, right, right at about 8%, but it doesn't drink like that. It drinks like five and a half or so. And, you know, you can get in trouble with that, but uh, that's why we got plenty of room to stretch out in here. How, how do you accomplish that? How do you make I, a eight or nine percent beer that drinks like a five or six percent beer? You know, I, it's really about um, having a healthy fermentation. You know, oxygenating. Uh, you know, getting your oxygen uh, dialed in, uh, fermenting cool, fermenting long, um, having really healthy yeast. Uh, we uh, use exclusively uh, omega yeast here uh, at Rockwell, and I've been constantly impressed by uh, the the knowledge of their staff, but also the quality of the product. Like it's, uh, it really is some killer yeast pitches that they bring in here. And so, yeah, like those, those things I think are the, um, the most important part. And with Katsimir's, like it's something that, you know, it can't be rushed. We, uh, whenever we're doing any of our food or loggers, typically um, we're close to terminal gravity before we're transferring over to the fooder for lagering. Um, and we're also stepped down to lagering temperature. So if we're doing, you know, a five or per, uh, 6% lager that we're going to do in oak, it's probably 10 days before we get it over to the fooder. But with uh, Katzmeers, it's on its own schedule. And that's typically in stainless for, you know, a month and a half to two months before it gets over to, uh, to oak. Sounds a terribly expensive beer to make. Um, yeah. I mean, it, it's something that we, it, it, you know, uh, one of the benefits of being slower during COVID is that we have that luxury of, of tank space, but, um, but yeah, yeah otherwise it's, uh, you know, it, it takes a, it takes its own sweet time. Sure. So we talked, you talked about um, building a kind of mash profile with a little bit of that dark fruit. Um, you know, how, how do you, um, th you know, throw some of the Baltic Porter edge to that? Um, and then, you know, are you using the same base malt that you use for other beers in the brewery or is there some consideration there? Um, and then, yeah. Yeah. So uh, all of our lagers, uh, even the Baltic Porter, the base malt is uh, the Vireman uh, floor malted uh, Bohemian Pills. Um, in, in a pale beer, uh, I just love the, that really light, almost grassy character that it has, but also, you know, like it just, um, it ferments out and the, the, the resulting beer is just so, um, clean and round. You know, I, I find that, you know, especially with a paler lager, if you're, uh, brewing with a, a lesser malt, then, you know, it's, it's going to show through. And I think that that's true even with the darker stuff. So we do that, but then, uh, you know, about 20% of that beer 
is also Munich. And then for the uh, uh, the darkness, uh, that bite, it's a mixture of, uh, of black and chocolate malt uh, from Simpsons. And, you know, we're looking at like three and a half percent of each of those. So it's um, that bite is uh, is there, but it's really more about uh, layers of, you know, chocolate, caramel and some of that dark fruit in there. Enough to kind of soften the edge of that bite so that it's there and it's firm, but it's not exactly. shocking. Yeah. 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 Hops. Talk talk to me a little about, um, you know, what hops look like in this Baltic Porter. You know, the hops are one of those things that um, I, I I really search for. Uh, we, uh, we use a lot of uh, German hops. Uh, this one has uh, middle fruit in it. And for that, like we're just doing a uh, a fifteen minute edition, and you know it's something that you really just have to look for. I mean, I I tell myself it's there, but um, you know I I think that like there is a you know like a slightly um, a slight herbalness there uh, that's just kind of an accent as it warms. But uh, I'd have to do a side by side without it. <laughs> to say if that's my mind telling me that or if it's actually there just there because middle fruit is a good standard hop and uh yeah you know, because something I'm looking that's not for... gonna you know because you have it for other reasons you know other things in the brewery too and it's not going to jump out on its own yeah well, let's uh let's talk then about uh you know like the the boil process you is this an extended boil um is there any difference to the the way that you go about that uh, that brew yeah, so uh, we do a 90-minute boil on there just to, uh, you know, to concentrate some of those flavors and to, uh, you know, to boost the uh, original gravity just a little bit. But it's nothing It's nothing crazy long. Uh, most of our beers, uh, including the, you know, the 100% pills ones, are 60-minute uh, are boils. You know, we just do a, a good, very vigorous boil. We have an internal calandria and... Um, you know, we get it done there and, you know, we don't have a problem with DMS or anything. And then, um, you know, as you're knocking out and moving into the kind of fermentation process, you mentioned you used omega yeast. Is there a consistent lager strain that you're using across all of the lagers or uh, does the Baltic Porter get its, uh, get something special? Uh, so with the Baltic Porter, we use uh, the German lager one, which is the Weinstefaner 3470. Uh, and that's the same thing that's in uh, our standby as well as some of the other lagers. I think any more um, lager yeast is the one that we uh, switch around the most whenever we're doing different styles. Um, most of our ales have uh, either single strains or blends that we have pretty well locked in, but the, the lagers, uh, depending on what we're trying to get out of them, uh, we will uh, experiment more with that. And part of that is just, you know, like me being relatively new to lager brewing as opposed to brewing ales. You know, I, I brewed a couple of um, lagers as a home brewer. And then I uh, I wrote the recipe for perennial pills uh, whenever I was still there, uh, and, which was also the 3470. So now it's just, you know, I'm calling the shots and I got the opportunity to try out new things. <laughs> 
what um what does fermentation then look like um you know uh, in terms of i mean obviously the baltic porter you like a little bit of that fruit character but you're probably not trying to you know uh, generate a lot of ester profile from that lagering yeast um how do you uh, kind of dial it in where you like it yeah so we uh we start off uh, we knock out at 62 fahrenheit uh for the first day and then uh by the time we come in the next day or, or midday uh we're at high krausen and then we start stepping it down at, at two degrees an hour um for it to 52 and that's where you know our primary fermentation goes uh, we'll do a diacetyl rest and uh at 60 uh, about a weekend and let that sit there for three or four days uh, if we're you know, we're not dry hopping the the Baltic porter, but if we were dry hopping the beer, typically we'll do it after the dry uh, after the diastole rest, and then we'll start uh, stepping it down five degrees a day down to thirty two. And with most of our loggers, uh, we like to let them sit for at least seven weeks. And with uh, with cats, you know, like we, uh, it's typically in stainless for you know a month and a half two months and then in oak for another two and this time around it was in there just a bit longer just scheduling and stuff but uh it has not suffered from the uh the additional oak time i, I assure you sure sure why why step down five degrees a day you know why uh so that's what about a four or five day process to get down to your lagering temps it's, I, I think it's easier on the yeast that way, you know, like we're still, um, you know, like we're not at terminal gravity at that point. I don't want to shock yeah. the yeast and, uh, and cause it to, uh, to not fully attenuate, you know, like all of our loggers are, uh, are very dry, you know, typically, uh, ending at about two Play-Doh, uh, Katsumiro's ends at uh, like five and a half or six. So it's a, a little, you know, it's definitely chewy by our standards. Yeah. Um, or as I'm thinking about, like, is that additional gravity there just balancing alcohol? Is that something that you've designed into it specifically because it's also picking up other wood character and uh, serves other means? Um, you know, talk to me a little bit about, uh, you know, the way that you think about balancing those flavors, the, the higher finishing gravity on Katzmeers. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, uh, it's really, um, it's about balancing flavors. Uh, it's also about body, you know, like having some of that residual sugar there. Like I don't like, it doesn't finish, uh, super sweet. Uh, there's not a super sweet, uh, perceived sweetness there. How many times can I say sweet? Um, <laughs> But, you know, like there, there is more than, than others. And, you know, like some of that, I just don't want the beer to, to come off as thin. Like I want it to be smooth and to have, you know, uh, a bit of an edge from the roasted malt and the, as well as the carbonation. But like, I don't want it to be um, like there's nothing there. Sure, sure. Well, it's a wonderful beer. And in fact, I've still got uh, one from the August batch in the fridge uh, that you had sent us for our best in beer issue. And uh, if it weren't earlier in the day right now, I'd be drinking one as we speak. Let's pivot a little bit and uh, talk about uh, some mixed fermentation and then uh, or maybe some of your other lagers as well. But first, ABS Commercial is excited to be a part of today's podcast. 
ABS is a full brewery outfitter offering brew houses, tanks, keg washers, and small parts. As a part of ABS Commercial's ongoing give back campaign, they'll be giving away an ABS Keg Viking keg washer in June. So make sure to periodically check the ABS Commercial Facebook page to find out when the contest opens up and how you can enter to win a keg Viking. Um, so you tell me, Jonathan, what do you want to talk about next? You want to talk about some mixed fermentation? You want to talk about, sure. uh, you know, yeah, let's do mixed fermentation. Let's do it. You know, so obviously you have this basis um, and this background now, you know, uh, playing around, experimenting, working with Phil and Corey, a perennial. And uh, uh, as you decided to you know, bring that idea of mixed culture fermentation, uh, you know, to some degree with you through beers like Polymath at Rockwell, um, how did you, you know, uh, talk to me a little bit about that kind of uh, ideation process and how um, you wanted to put your own spin on this idea of mixed fermentation? Yeah, so I, I think uh, one of the beers that really first kind of split my head wide open was uh, Phantom Saison. Um, you know, as I was home brewing and then, uh, you know, getting into mixed firm beers at Perennial, <clears throat> excuse me, getting into mixed firm beers at Perennial, that uh, was something that really uh, made my hat, head pop open because, you know, like, opening a Phantom bottle is often, uh, I've heard it compared to like opening a lottery ticket, right? Where like, you know, you're either going to have a right. transcendent experience or, or something else is going to happen. Uh, most of mine have been, you know, fairly transcendent. And what I love about them is that, you know, there's often a good, you know, like funky complexity, something that you can't quite put your finger on. And uh, there may be an acidity, but the acidity is harmonious like it's not a driving factor and i think for for my palate a lot of uh american mixed firm beers are much more acid forward and there aren't the additional layers there and so what i wanted to bring in with polymath was a you know i wanted that acidity but i wanted it to be soft and i wanted it to be balanced and i also wanted brett complexity and so I had brought together a um, collection of, of different cultures from, from various sources, as well as um, I brought a, uh, a strain of, of Britannomyces to the brewery that I had got for free from a homebrew shop whenever I was living in New York. Uh, there was a microbiology um, student there named Dmitry Serganov, and he dropped off a bunch of vials from... Uh, Brett strains he'd isolated from Cantillon Iris. And uh, it's like, they're free. They don't cost anything. Just like, let us know what that, what you think. And I used it and uh, it was, you know, as a, a utility player, it worked great in mixed firm. It was hundred percent Brett uh, for Saison's as well as like doing a pale ale. And, you know, you could do a lot of different stuff with this yeast. And so I wanted that to be part of the program and whenever you put it in polymath, you know, like people would think the beer was fruited because, you know, like there's just like this really powerful uh, peach essence to it. Um, and and there's no fruit, or at least there's no fruit yet. There are fruited versions that are, <laughs> that are on the way uh, right, that I'm excited right. about. But yeah, I, I just, I wanted to, you know, kind of take some of the, some of the American uh, aesthetic but also like look more to, um, you know, some of like the Phantom beers and uh, 
some of the qualities of other saisons uh, in Belgium that maybe weren't even mixed fermentation, but like still were uh, yeast driven. What uh, you, you mentioned that you aim for light acidity and balance and very light and balanced acidity, you know, certainly brewers today seem, seem to be constrained by certain demands of consumers, which for some reason seem to like, you know, slightly out of balance, excessively acidic beers uh, at this point in our evolution. I think, you know, there are brewers that are helping change their minds, thankfully, uh, and moving this conversation so that these beers, these mixed fermentation beers can certainly, um, you know, play on that lighter side. Uh, but for you, what is that kind of ultimate goal is in terms of TA or in terms of, of pH? I don't know how you measure that. Uh, I measure it by taste. <laughs> I don't, don't, highly, highly scientific. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) you know, it's, it it is definitely a a rustic approach. Um, You know, uh, in terms of those beers, you know, like if we're doing a, uh, a quick sour beer, I aim for three, three, but whenever we're doing the, the mixed firm pitches and the acidity develops over months, like I'm honestly, like I'm just tasting it. Yeah. Um, in, uh, in terms of also building that idea of balance, are there, you know, specific kind of malt approaches that you take in order to build the flavors that that bread and that mixed culture can play off of, um, you know, to, so that it has a, a canvas from which, you know, to build? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, like we're, we're using, uh, um, malt, uh, you know, like varying the malt as well as, uh, you know, doing a bit with, uh, with the water, uh, you know, adding, uh, you know, like we, we love calcium chloride uh, here at the brewery because, you know, just that added roundness that we're getting in a lot of our beers. But in terms of malt, like we think about, um, you know, in addition to the Pilsner malt base, that's, you know, kind of a, uh, you know, a through line, also just adding uh various uh adjunct malts uh love spelt and that you know that slight nuttiness that it gives to it you know the spiciness of rye which i think uh, you know plays really well uh with uh lactic acidity uh oats and uh and flaked wheat uh just to those are are more you know building body as as well as uh head retention you know like having a uh an acidic beer that that still has has foam to it is uh, a rarity, and you know, is, and it's always uh, <laughs> yeah. a goal. Uh, but we're doing that, and then what also, does it take to achieve that? What are we're, we're, talk to me about your tricks on that? Um, you know, generally, obviously, high protein stuff. Uh, you know, malts tend to you know yield out better head retention in that. But uh, um, I think I know, think that's there... I think that's the main uh, at least for us. Like that's our our, our main tool is, is really building in uh, the flake grains uh, as well as, you know, the higher protein stuff. Uh, are there mash like steps stuff. or are there, uh, you know, mash pH goals that um, kind of help you achieve that head retention? I mean, certainly I've read some stuff around uh, that, uh, you know, hitting those spe- not just, you know, mash steps, but also hitting very specific kind of pH levels through that mash process. Um, can help yeah. So we uh, retention we're typically not doing step mashes for uh, the mix firm beers. Like we're typically just mashing at, uh, you know, 152, sometimes 154, like nothing even crazy high uh, right. with, with the saisons. 
um, you know, like we do step uh, step mashing with the loggers, uh, but just haven't uh, seen the benefit so far uh, with uh, with polymath specifically, and with the acidity, you know, we're starting, you know, five two to five four. Um, so again, like nothing out of line with you know like what we'd have for an IPA. Yeah. Um, another thing that helps with uh, with foam is that uh, we really do um, hop throughout. Like I'm a I'm a pretty firm believer in uh, in kettle hopping. Whether we're doing an IPA or we're doing uh, a mixed firm beer, like I'm going to have hops in there at multiple points in the in the process, and I think you know the polyphenols there are are helping out with that for sure, um, and also adding layers of flavor, creating other compounds too that the the bread will ultimately transform and work on. Um, what is that? What's that hop? Uh, you know. Uh, process look like in your uh, mixed firm beers like polymath so polymath um is we're using uh i fell in love with crystal hops from uh from From hophead farms out of michigan yeah i uh it's been four or five years ago now uh when i was still at perennial we were taking a part uh, we were taking part in a uh like a tap takeover event that they were doing with hop leaf in Chicago. And I just, uh, I just listened to a, a podcast with Ron Jeffries talking about band beer and he was talking about crystal hops. And I was like, well, that's cool. I, you know, like I, I'd never considered using crystal hops in anything. Nobody was talking about crystal hops at that point. And um, then we got these crystal hops from Michigan and it's just like the brightest. It was like smelling a, a glass of orange juice, just like the purest essence of huh. orange without any of the other, you know, more perfumey um, aspects that you might get from the Pacific Northwest. And we put those in a food or saison uh, there at Perennial, and it was just it was dynamite. Like it was, it it smelled like a uh, like a fruity cocktail just really the essence uh the essence of citrus so with polymath though um you know like we're uh you know like we, we do first hort hopping with most of our beers um and then uh in the kettle we're doing three and uh 30 and five minute additions the last batch of polymath we did uh mostly crystal but we also had some uh amarillo on hand, which I'm a big fan of, you know, like that kind of apricot that you can get from there. I thought that'd be cool. And then uh, we'll transfer over to the Whirlpool and do another uh, steep before we knock out. And that's kind of where the big, uh, you know, aromatic punch uh, comes in. And I think that that is you know, all these though, contemporary IPA tricks to, uh, to make your mixed culture Saison, huh? Yeah. You know, and I think, I think some of that, carries through you know like and and part of that is you know like it's like being less acid forward it gives that room to uh to stick around you know even though uh you know our first batch of polymath was in and out in four months and then the next batch we left in there for a year and so it's kind of an evolution of 
uh, what we wanted that beer to be, but you can definitely taste similarities there, even though they're they're different ages. Let's talk a little bit about uh, kind of generating that funk component. Now you've you've got you know your fun Brett strain, um, you know that's creating kind of stone fruity stuff, but uh, and you're not you know mashing extraordinarily high to leave you know kind of hard to ferment or dextrinous kind of you know elements there for Brett to chew on over a very extended amount of time. Um, you know, are there any other consider? And it doesn't. And it doesn't sound like you're using aged hops, which might produce some of those kinds of cheesier, funky elements that Brett can then also work to transform. How do you build that, um, you know, subtle funk layer then that uh, you know is part of that expectation with mixed fermentation uh, farmhouse and saison beers? Uh, I think you know, like we've been. I, I think we've been very fortunate so far with just you know the the cultures the. Uh, that we've grown up, you know, like, and, and that just, you know, started from, you know, kind of that DIY homebrew mentality where you're, you're sitting around and you're like, Hey, I like that beer. And, you know, you take the dregs and you grow it up. And then over time it, uh, you know, it drifts and it kind of becomes its own thing. Uh, but we have a, you know, we have a culture that we keep going in the brewery and now it's, you know, it's going in the fooder. Um, and I think that that is what's responsible for it. Are there, uh, how have you um, kind of massaged and selected that culture over time in order to kind of get it to exactly where you wanted it to be? I think uh, in terms of keeping it where we want it to be is, is part of that is just the, the hopping, you know, like keeping it from becoming too acid forward that way. Um, you know, and then we just, uh, you know, we've got a, We've got a carboy and then we've got a, a, a fooder and the, the carboy we uh, refresh every couple months. Like typically if we're uh, brewing standby, you know, we'll, we'll dump it out and we'll refresh it and keep it going that way. And, um, feed it some fresh Pilsner wort. And, uh, yeah. You know, like something that's, uh, not too characterful on the malt side, but also, you know, like has got plenty of, uh, hop matter in there as well as IBU uh, that's going to, you know, keep things from drifting too far afield. So you mentioned you've got some fruit versions in the works. Talk to me a little bit about, um, you know, kind of extending the the family of uh, mixed culture beers at Rockwell. Yeah. So that was, that was always something that was, you know, important to me because, you know, like, while I think that there's definitely uh, times and places for, uh, for quick sours, I'm not hating on those at all. Like, I think that a lot of them tend to become uh, pretty monochromatic. You know, they, you make a sour, you, you know, like we have a sour wort recipe and then we're going to put a bunch of organ fruit on it. And, and it sells very well. You know, like somebody sees a, a glass of purple uh, from across the bar and they want that. Um, what we wanted to do from the outset was kind of use that to get started as we built up our mixed fermentation base, but then, you know, challenge the consumer a little bit with something that, you know, was perhaps, um, a little more elegant, um, and a little more nuanced. So sure. what we've done, my hot take be- on that is that that entire class of heavily fruited quick sour beers might as well all be seltzers and they probably will be within the next several years where as the beer character is less important than the fruit character, why not 
simplify and make the beer the fermented character more straightforward to let that fruit become its thing and just uh let beer be beer anyway that's yeah aside. no I, I i i mean i i completely agree with you um i think that i you know i think there's a lot of truth to that and i think that would also be you know a much easier way to get there uh get that done what we're doing now is we had uh we had a batch of mature polymath and so we split it two different ways. Uh, we have a couple of unjacketed uh, bright tanks uh, that were just, you know, kind of like used as uh, aging vessels, uh, as well as a, a stainless steel tote. So we did two uh, for this first uh, variation. We did uh, two different versions. Uh, we did uh, my favorite pie in the world, which is it's important to know that about yourself is peach melba. <laughs> um, so peach, peach and, melba? and okay. peach melba, peach and raspberry. Um, it's not as, pecan pie is way better, but I'll, I'll, you know. I mean, you know, like, yes, but I don't want to make a pecan pie sour beer. Fair enough. I understand. <laughs> um, so we started uh, with 800 pounds of, of local peaches and Missouri and Southern Illinois. Like, I didn't know this until I started working with perennial, but like, the peaches here are fantastic. You know, like people can talk about, you know, like Georgia or, or, or California, but like we grow really great peaches here and they're, they're fresh and they're relatively inexpensive. And uh, so we processed all those by hand and then we got, you know, another 400 pounds of uh, individually quick frozen raspberries and put that in there on top. And then we did another version with uh, blackberries and plums, red plums. And so those are both uh, Melba's ready to go, and uh, the blackberry plum is almost mature. And so what we're starting to do now, or, or rather, what we're going to start doing next week is <laughs> um, can conditioning mixed firm beers, which interesting uh, sounds yeah, like a fun so, process. Yeah, I'm 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 really excited about it. We got a uh, we got a separate manifold. Uh, for the canning line and we um yeah so we'll be able to swap out all the soft parts that beer touches and then can condition those beers because i mean to be real honest like you know bottles don't move like bottles are right now are uh are fairly dead for for most things you know when we released uh the first batch of polymath um i feel like it took close to a year. Say, say we uh, bottled, you know, like, you know, 10, 10 barrels of it. It took close to a year to sell almost half of those bottles. <laughs> the, the, I mean, you know, the, the draft just flew. I mean, wow. like, the people yeah. love the draft and they, you know, like it, it blew out uh, very quickly. The bottles, you know, seven fifties, they just sat and, until COVID and we started selling beer through the drive-thru and then all of a sudden people wanted beer out of uh, 750s again. And, you know, the, the second half of those bottles just like disappeared almost immediately again. But it's not always going to be like that. God help right. us. Um, so, you know, we're uh, uh, Ben Bailey, our, um, our production and uh, packaging manager. He was like, you know, like we should really 
try to figure out can conditioning. He's like, I, you know, he, his formerly sales at perennial, like he's got a, he's got a mind for this stuff. And he was like, I think that, you know, like all this stuff would really fly if we're doing can conditioning and nobody's doing that right now or, or not many people are doing that. Right. And so we're going to give it a go. Um, the first through will be, uh, we've got a, um, uh, a fooder, uh, pale ale, uh, that's, uh, funky, you know, and, and like, uh, unamericanized, uh, Yankee Orval, uh, <laughs> kind of way, uh, that'll be the first one through. And then the fruited polymaths will be after that. It'll be fun to see how that works out. And I love the idea yeah, of I putting mean, Saison into, you know, four packs of, uh, of cans. Um, you know, there's, they are longer beers to make and certainly you start adding fruit and they become more expensive beers to make. But, uh, you know, consumers are also used to paying the prices they have to pay for beers with eight or 10 pounds uh, per barrel of hops in them. And hops are not cheap either. So, uh, right. um, you know, and, and so the consumer stomach for paying that for a canned beer, uh, you know, is, is there now where it might not have been before. It's kind of interesting to see all of those factors working together to kind of support this. Um, can't wait to see how that works out. Looking, um, looking at the long term, um, what does the the next year look like for Rockwell, and uh, you know where do you think the Rockwell is going to be in four or five years? You know, uh, what I'm hoping within the next year is that we uh, get a, a more um, a, a bit of a return to normalcy. I feel like you know we're we do distribute, but 85, you know, pre COVID 85% of our beer sold over the bar, you know, by the, by the glass, uh, which was incredible for me. Like, you know, one of my favorite things about being a brewer is being able to look back through the, the glass garage doors into the tasting room and, you know, get that immediate gratification of seeing people enjoy, you know, what we're working so hard on every day. And, you know, like it's getting better, um, but it's still, uh, there's still a long way to go. Uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to having more of that. Um, we have some, uh, there, there are some fun projects uh, for St. Louis that I can't talk about just yet. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry. No, nobody, no, right. uh, no interviewer likes to hear that. Um, we, we've got some. I love the KGTs like that, though. I mean, yeah, you know, you know like, like, stay tuned. You're like waving your red flag in front yeah. of the bowl. And I, yeah. you know, it's, yeah. Well, I'm going to ask. <laughs> um, but yeah, you know, like, we're we're a St. Louis brewery. And what what I want to do, in you know, in the next year, the next four to five years, is really uh, to drive that home uh, and to make sure that we're giving back as much to the community as, as what they're giving to us. Uh, through our uh, our programming here at the tap rooming as well as uh, our partnerships and I think you know eventually uh, what I would like to do is you know have I, I'm not opposed to travel I love traveling for beer um, doing events where you know say we do a temporary distribution agreement for uh, a few pallets of beer set up some collaborations and then fly out, do some events, shake some babies, kiss some hands, 
and uh, and brew some beer and and have a good time and then go back home. Uh, what I don't want to happen is you know what I uh, what I see a, a lot of places around the country is you know like you have all of these great bottle shops that have a thousand different things on the shelves and nobody there to tell the story of those beers. Uh, I don't want our beer rotting on the shelf. I want you to have a reason to, I want you to taste it and then have a reason to come visit us in St. Louis. A connection uh, is one of the most interesting and important things about craft beer. And I think it's a reason that so many people are attracted to craft beer. And when you break that connection or brands grow bigger in order to satisfy business needs more so than thinking about what a consumer wants out of, out of that equation, then, uh, things get a little more challenging. You know, I think you're right. Like, don't they have that connection and that reason to buy it, to consume it or, uh, and to, you know, um, some, any, you know, kind of, I mean, that, that again is, you know, what we see people being, you know, flocking to craft beer for is, is the same reason they go to, um, you know, farmers markets and uh, like to buy from local purveyors that uh, understanding who's making the thing, why they're making it, knowing where their motivations are and feeling like your consumption is a part of, you know, this broader connected experience. I mean, you know, that's what makes craft beer special. That's what makes it not, uh, not big beer. Yeah. I mean, like, you know, that, that connection is, is so important. And I, I see that, uh, you know, that play out for us, like the way that people, they care, they care about more about our beer because they know who we are. You know, they can come in here and they can see us work and, you know, they see the people, um, you know, our fantastic staff in the, uh, in the tasting room are there to, to greet them and take care of them. And they, they see, uh, you know, what a fun time can be had at a craft brewery. I mean, one of the things that is really cool about our location is, you know, like we're, we're right off uh, an area called the Grove, which is a bunch of, you know, bars and restaurants and music venues, uh, Urban Chestnut is over there. And it's just like a place where people go out, but not necessarily right. beer nerds. And then people drive by here and they see the shipping containers outside and they see the fire pit and they see people just having a good time. And people, even though it says Rockwell Beer Company, in letters three and a half feet high outside, like they'll come in and they're like, what is this place? And, you know, there's, there's no pretense there at all. There's just, you know, people there to warmly welcome them and say like, Hey, you know, like we're Rockwell, we make beer, you know, come in, let's have a good time. And if you don't like beer, that's fine too. You know, like we have, uh, a couple of really great, um, you know, bartenders making cocktails and we've got, you know, the cider that we do, we've got some coffee on draft and uh, non-alcoholic things too. And people come in and, you know, they may not be in any other tasting room in town or around the country, but they're having a good time here. And that's a connection that's made outside of that small, you know, a super geek niche that's, you know, chasing down, uh, you know, the next uh, limited allotment beer or checking in on untapped or whatever. And we love those people too, but like there's so much more that uh, we can appeal to. 
Well, you've built a beautiful space that appeals to the contemporary sensibilities of folks. You've got a beautiful approach to packaging with uh, bright, colorful, and modern cans that, uh, you know, even when it's a mixed fermentation saison inside of it, makes it look cool to consume and is certainly Instagram friendly. And, uh, you know, and so you're right, even for those folks that uh, just consider themselves uh, modern folks and, uh, and love the aesthetic, it provides a clear way for people to feel connected to that kind of thing in a way that's different than some of uh, some of the contemporaries and some of the breweries owned by folks you've worked with and worked for um, in the past. And it's fun to see that kind of different approach to identity and uh, uh, even if there are some commonalities, uh, you know, at the core between the beer styles that are being brewed. Um, G&D Chillers is the brewing industry's premier choice for glycol chilling. Try Leopold Brothers malts from BSG. Get consistent product and reliable supply from Old Orchard. Take full advantage of the enhanced marketing power of Brewery DB. And check the ABS commercial Facebook page to find out how to enter to win a keg viking. Of course, if you'd like to support this very podcast, go to beerandbrewing.com, click on the subscribe button, and if you're a pro brewer, consider our our new all-access pro subscriptions that combine both of our magazines, exclusive online content, and more. And those subscriptions will also let you watch our online class with Jonathan here uh, talking about brewing light and sessionable years uh, and you can also see the inside of uh, rockwell and uh, you know get some of the behind the scenes along the way um jonathan if people want to reach uh, you or see more about uh, rockwell where do they find you in real life uh, and on the internet sure uh, so uh, the best place to experience rockwell is here at the tap room or uh, 1320 south vanaventer in st louis and uh, online you can find us on facebook instagram and twitter at rockwell beer uh, or at rockwellbeer.com. Cool. Thanks for chatting with me about uh, Rockwell beers and your approach to brewing. Jonathan, uh, cheers. Thank you so much, Jamie. It was a pleasure. This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at craftbeerbrew.com.